present I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, the antidote to panel games. At the piano is Colin Sell, and your chairman is Humphrey Littleton. Hello and welcome to I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. So I'm here with uh, Humphrey Littleton, who is uh, chairman of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Uh, he's a jazz trumpeter of legend, a national treasure, humorist, calligrapher and subversive, I think. Um, congratulations on getting to 30 years with this show. Thank you very much. I don't know how we've done it, but uh, it's, it's nice to be here. It's been 30 years. You were there from the very beginning, but you weren't always the host. Is that right? Well, at the very beginning, I, I did the pilot. Because in those days, anybody who did any broadcasting, I'd done a bit about music, about jazz and things. Uh, anybody who did any broadcasting and, and sounded um, articulate would eventually be called on to do some kind of a pilot, you know. And that's a, you know, a sort of... Um, sample program that people one hoped would go out on the air they never did Nine, 90 percent of them went down the plug after they'd been done because the producers had a budget to do every year and if they didn't do enough for them they they cut their budget so they used to do them in that and i thought this was one of them i just went in you pick up a studio free no chance of it coming out so i went in then did the first one. It was they tried to do it all ad lib, which meant that I sat there in the middle of four people sweating profusely, you know, because um, on radio with with no no time, studio time to go back and 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 redo an ad lib situation, it was very nerve wracking. So, but you'd you'd uh, not been known in radio. Uh, you were a, a jazz man, basically. Yes. And uh, so, how how did it occur to anyone to have you well, as I the had, chairman? I had started a, a program which is even longer running than this one uh, in 1967, which was a, a jazz program called The Best of Jazz, and that still goes out on on Monday nights. That's been going for uh, 33 years or something. So uh, I, you know, they they knew that I could. I could talk into a microphone. Hello and welcome again to I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, the show which does for entertaining panel games what being hit repeatedly on the head with a large croquet mallet does for small frogs. <laughs> or so I'm told. I, I did the pilot, but when they came through and said we're going to put it on the air, I had already some dates in the in in the book, you know, from, with my band and so on. So Barry did the first uh, one, I think, of the... Um, he may have done a few more than the first one in the series, and uh, and I took it up from then. You were sustaining a pretty hefty uh, tour schedule throughout all this. Tim and Graham were making the goodies all through the 70s. Yeah. Um, when did you find time? Well, it, it's not very, very time-consuming uh, because we do uh, we record them two at a time and uh, now of course we do them in huge theatres uh, um, I mean I think 1400 of Milton Keynes was the biggest and um, uh, so that occupies we do six in the spring that means three usually Sunday nights and uh, six more in the late autumn so that's um, so that's really only six days out of the year so it doesn't, uh, you know, occupy an enormous amount of time. And uh, the teams usually arrive a day earlier and, and sort of sort out some things, like the musical games, right. you know, and, and I just stroll in just before the recording goes on, so... The teams are going to sing for us now in a round called One Song to the Tune of Another. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a game of such pure simplicity that to offer an explanation would be an insult to the intelligent mind. So teams, what happens is I notice you have a you have a you had a quick kind of read through the cards. Is that about as much preparation as it takes now? 
Well, I have to do that because, um, as uh, John Naismith told the audience tonight, he brought on Ian Pattinson, who for 10 years has written my introductions and the leads into the different games. And some people say, oh, we thought it was you. you know, no, that's not so much. But in point of fact, for me, it's a bigger challenge. It's much harder to do and, and much more rewarding to do well than just to think up some f stuff of your own, you know, hit or miss. Because you've got to see to it that you don't um, torpedo any of his punchlines. And therefore, you have to think about it, uh, sort of think about the timing and judge it correctly, so that, for instance, a, a good joke doesn't disappear in laughter or applause or anything like that. Okay, so I, I thought I was slightly modest because, although a good portion is written down, there do seem to be these uh, occasional ad libs which <laughs> basically bring their house down. Well, it's all part of my uh, persona on the program of a. Of a, of a grumpy chairman. When I first did the first uh, real show, not the pilot, I drove in thinking, what am I going to do? I've got four you know, professional comedians, comic actors, and, and uh, I mean, I can't do it. I can't chip in with anything worth chipping in. And by the time I got to the theater, I thought, well, that is exactly how I shall present myself as somebody who's come in to, in the midst of all these people. And uh, there's a slight hint that he doesn't really want to be there and uh, slightly grumpy about everything and, uh, and uh, I've done that 30 years now. Okay, the teams are going to sing for us now in a game called One Song to the Tune of Another. You'd, you'd have to be lacking even a basic knowledge of harmony and rhythm to fail to grasp this concept. So listen up, Jeremy. A song is comprised of two main constituents, the words and the tune, a bit like a bottle of shampoo and conditioner, in fact. The shampoo element can be envisaged as the words, cleaning the grease and grime from our hair, although obviously the words of a song don't literally do that. This is supported by the conditioner, leaving our locks shiny and manageable and eliminating unsightly split ends, in the same way that the tune supports the words, except that words don't suffer from split ends. Now, teams, I can see you've grasped the basics already, but yes, there is. There is one question that still needs an answer. What about dandruff? <laughs> well, even the best quality shampoo and conditioner won't always guarantee to rid us of an unsightly irritant that keeps coming back no matter how hard you try. <laughs> At the piano, Colin Sell. on the subject of ageism. Was, is it true that, it, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, was going to go to television, but you were all deemed too old for television? Well, I'm sorry to say, it's a regrettable fact that, um, you know, 45 years old, we were a bit older than that, but it didn't make much difference. 45 years old is usually a sort of a watershed, you know, beyond which in television, they're always wanting young people to come in and do things. But um, I didn't want to do it. Willie, Rush, uh, Willie Rushton and I uh, held out, I think, more uh, strongly against television. Because, as Willie said at one of the meetings that we had about doing a television thing, uh, this is, though we say it ourselves, it's, it's, it'll go down as one of the great... BBC comedy shows that people will talk about, you know, like um, um, uh, Round the Horn and Itmar and all those things. And why, you know, move into a different medium, which is, apart from anything else, going to be very hard to do. You know, you can't have... One of the things we do very often is to play television games, but on radio. And things like we've done, we've done through the keyhole, and we do children's party games, pass the parcel and all these things which are essentially visual things. And the blinking uh, game. And the blinking game, which we do, which nobody else, nobody listening at home can see what's going on. But um, you can't do that on television. And also television, it's, it's, it's a lot of hanging about and a lot of running through things. And then we just turn up and virtually speaking, you know, we just come on and do it. And it has a sort of freshness. And looking at your audience, uh, tonight, 
you've got families, you've got um, the young and old, you've got a rather well-heeled-looking um, <laughs> yeah, well, it is, uh, it is a very, a, a, a very um, wide sort of range of people that we get for this show. And I know that because um, uh, my audiences have, have um, improved in character mm. since, the, since the show became, as it has been for the last um, decade, I suppose, a sort of like a cult show, mm. especially among young people. I get people who come to my concerts and they come up and I expect they're going to, you know, I expect them to ask for a request of a jazz number in the second half, and they say, oh, we're we're nephews and nieces of uh, of Mrs. Trellis, or you know, in fact, sometimes they come up and say, I'm Mrs. Trellis. Did um did Radiohead come up and say that? You played on a Radiohead. Um, That's right. Yes, uh, I did. I did. I, I started in on the sort of fringes of journalism when I, I was a cartoonist on the Daily Mail. I used to write things, and I learned very early on that sort of journalistic uh, um, uh, principle of say yes and find out about it afterwards. Okay, but there must have been uh, some... Uh, I mean, if they wanted a trumpeter, a session trumpeter for a, for a track, they probably could have... Uh, you know, found one fairly easily, but there well, must have been some well, the thing uh, was love that, in that. Yeah, well, the thing was that Johnny Greenwood, uh, who is uh, the sort of that guy who does the talking, you know, with, he wrote to me and said, this is probably an awful cheek, but we've got a track on our forthcoming CD, which um, we're, we're, we're having terrible trouble about how to treat it. And we discussed it the other day and, and thought that maybe... Uh, the sort of New Orleansy jazz that we've that they'd heard some of my early records and things. So um, you know, what do you think about it? So I said yes, you know, in that true journalistic fashion, and then uh, sent me a tape of the of the tune. Couldn't make head or tail of it, and uh, and this is where the find out about it after you know say yes first and regret it later. But we we had a meeting up at the BBC and. Um, uh, I said, um, sort of half-jokingly, I said, it sounds to me as though uh, the sort of thing that might go would be New Orleans funeral music. Because, as you know, they're not, it's not Happy Days are here again when they perform. And, and um, he said, yeah, it's a great idea. So we went in the studio and spent, I think it was nine hours or seven hours, uh, gradually moving. They didn't know what they wanted us to do. We didn't know what they wanted us to do. And uh, we gradually sort of moved towards it. And after seven hours, I said, that's it. You know, we're not, it's not going to get any better than that. But there's, there's a certain sort of working with Radiohead had a certain, sorry, I haven't a clue, element, unexpected yeah. element about it, because uh, Tom York, the singer, who's, uh, who's uh, you know, he writes wonderful things, you know, that sort of always reminded me of that Procol Harum thing, you know, the surrealistic words, and his are yeah. far out and, and great. And, and like when they came to us, we had to play the tape over and over and over. And I, and I began to get the feeling of what he was on about, you know, that ever, it, it's not, it's abstract, you know, the concept of his lyrics and that. Uh, do you think that I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue is the best advert against equal opportunities there's ever been? Since it seems to be mostly a boys' club. Uh, what do you mean from the point of view of the of the um, of the of the people, the teams, and all that sort the, of thing? The panel, yeah. Yeah, well, no, I would have said I would have said the opposite because I have nothing to do with. I mean, I turn up and do my bit. I don't. I'm not in on any production uh, discussions, uh, like for instance Graham Garden and Tim Brooke Taylor are. But. The teams, especially since Willie Rushton died, uh, but sometimes before when somebody was on a tour somewhere and couldn't do it, they, the teams themselves always choose people to be on. And uh, we've had a lot of young, the young comedians on. One who immediately comes to mind is Phil Jupiter's, who, uh, you know, who enjoyed himself you know, enormously, he made a little speech at the end saying how he'd listened to the program for years. And it was uh, the best, you know. He was in, he was in the crowd tonight, in the front row. So you are, I was going to see him backstage. Yeah. 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 
Um, yeah. So, but so it, the young element does come into it. Is it, it? There's always been that sort of cheeky innuendo in the show, uh, particularly with Samantha and etc. But the, it never crosses a line. I've found is that it, it remains innuendo, but never sort of spills into. Well, to tell you the honest truth. Uh, I don't really understand what it, what any of them are getting at. I'm very surprised when I'm reading out an ordinary bit of information from the script, and the audience suddenly bursts out laughing. So, uh, uh, no, it all goes over my head. All. So that's the Nothing secret. To do. The secret is me. not to understand. Well, the, uh, the secret of it is to read what you've got in front of you. Don't, if you suspect that something has a double meaning, don't pause, don't put on a sort of leery vocal expression, if you know what I mean on radio. Don't sort of um, do anything other than just read it. And if people see something rude in it, well, very few of them write into the BBC because to do so, they would confess that they some, saw something rude in it, you see, so they don't do it. I'll just read it. I'll just read it out. I'd, uh, on that subject, that, I was... That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I was going to ask... Uh, uh, you've probably answered this, but um, is it difficult to find uh, younger comics to come on who, who know the boundaries? Uh, but <laughs> maybe Funny. there are any boundaries. It doesn't seem to be, because we've had... Uh, we've had uh, oh, I can't remember all the people. We've had Jeremy Hardy on, and we've had, of course, Stephen. We've had um, Paul Merton on as well. Uh, very funny uh, lady who's on the news quiz. And again, whose name has completely gone out of my mind. But she was marvellous. Oh, we've had Sandy Toxfig as well. Sandy. So there's nothing, um, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing sexist or ageist or anything else about it. Gives me great pleasure to welcome our regular teams of On My Right, Willie Rushton and Tim Brooke-Taylor. And on my left, Barry Cryer and Graham Garden. I'm sorry I haven't a clue he's 30 years old this week. How comes it's lasted so long? Well, it started in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> that would do it. If I was to be serious, I think the main thing, which is Humphrey Littleton, is uh, it's one of those voices. He's <clears throat> funny, he's absolutely filthy. Um, but not filthy, uh, brilliant writing by Ian Patterson. Uh, and uh, that, I think and Willie Rushton, the really sad thing about his anniversary is that Willie Rushton's not here because he's such an integral part of it. And I had a chat with him actually a week before he died, and we said, when will this ever finish? And he said, well, it can go on as long as Humps around. And I think that's, that's what we feel now. Yeah. Graham, you devised the show, and it's been said that the inspiration was greed and laziness. Can you explain? Well, that's quite true, yeah. Very good reason. Um, extremely what good. Better? Um, we'd been doing, I'm sorry, I'll read that again on the radio, and Bill Oddie and I had been writing most of the scripts, and uh, we discovered that we were paid more for writing scripts on television, and it was not quite so, such hard work as writing for radio. So I came up with the idea, because I'd done a panel game, and um, I'd been a guest on a panel game, and thought, this is, this is quite easy, really. <laughs> And all you do is you, you give people a set of rules and then hope that they're funny. And then you just broadcast the funny bits. So we made up, a uh, between myself and David Hatch, this sort of uh, panel game with apparently serious rounds. Do you remember who picked the theme music? We, uh, David Hatch, I think, picked it. He played it to me in his office and said, what about this? And I thought, that's totally inappropriate. Uh, that'll do. Um, there's another reason I remember it, David, because you've been on a panel show with uh, oh, Giles Bangus, and you said, God, this is easy, this, this is a money for old this rope. Is for old rope. <laughs> so, let's get a bit of that uh, money, yeah. we'll provide the old rope, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we nearly called it old rope. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't get the money. The music's a piece of music called The Shickle Shamble. Right. For uh, Anorax out there. Monte Carlo and Bust, wasn't it? Let's finish off with a round of limericks. Here's one for you, Barry. When travelling in Holland by bike. <laughs> <laughs> when travelling in Holland by bike, something happened that I didn't like. I had a mishap. <laughs> <laughs> when I hit <laughs> a Dutch cap. <laughs> 
and my finger got stuck in a dike. <laughs> and there was going to be a TV version of Clue, but it, you were deemed too old for television. Really. Well, we did a pilot, or BBC went interested, naturally. Um, so we did a pilot for ITV, and uh, everybody seemed to like it. We didn't get it quite right, but it, it was going in the right direction, and it went to the central area where they decided to put on this. Yes, great programme. But could we have some younger people in it? Actually, <laughs> the programme doesn't really exist at all, does it, about us? Whatever age the people are on it. So it comes out, that would be the heart of it. Yeah. Can I apologise for hogging this? <laughs> Yes, we can. I apologise for hogging this. Oh, and you are something that you know. <laughs> um, but I think we were always a missile. At the back of all our minds, I think, was the, was the worry that it is such a radio programme. I mean, it, it really exists on radio and works on radio and, and is about radio. But putting it on television might somehow take away from its 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 myth. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> might spoil yeah, yeah. The, the, the radio show. So I'm we were never 100% about it. I was 100%. I was 100 As long as you kept radio, kept going on radio as the... As yeah, the, as I the, agree. Um, that was pure greed, though. <laughs> <laughs> Willie was ambivalent, as I remember. Yeah. Sort of bought fast at one point. No, I, I would actually quite like to have done it in a way, because then you could have done more for some visual jokes, which you can't do um, on radio. So it would have been, there would have been an extra element, and we started to try and put those in the pilot, didn't we? And not, mm. not many of them worked, because they technically <laughs> wouldn't work. <laughs> As the language is constantly changing, I'd like the teams to provide some new definitions they may have spotted lately. Polyunsaturated. A dry parrot. <laughs> Barry. Hors d'oeuvre. Women who hang round diesel pumps. <laughs> Graham. Uh, carpentry. A way in for ornamental fish. <laughs> Pokemon. <laughs> a Jamaican proctologist. <laughs> Stucco. Hitherto unknown Marx brother. <laughs> Gripe. What, a, <laughs> what Australians make wine from. <laughs> Extemporary. Permanent. Loophole, a very long lavatory brush. <laughs> Hot pot, stolen drugs. <laughs> Hormone. <laughs> no, forget it. <laughs> the internet's uh, allowing a lot of people to play Mornington Crescent online. Is that how it should be played, or do you need eye contact? I would think eye contact I myself. So. Yeah, it's a bit like poker in that sense. It's, yeah, I th I, it's better. I, I mean, if it's, if it's the only way you can get yeah. to play it, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. yeah. But it does bring a sort of international dimension to it. It yes. does, but it's, it, as you were saying, if you can't really see the other person, you can't play it absolutely properly. Um, but that doesn't, as Graham says, it doesn't stop us doing it. Well, there could be a board game, and that's, it's not as good, but it would be worth doing properly. Now, I'd like to ask you if you'll play a special round of Cheddar Gorge on the subject of Samantha. Uh, Tim, can you start? I'm working in that direction. Straight back in that direction. That direction. Hold position first. I was once in the BBC looking for a very rare but strangely intriguing and Probably hitherto undiscovered version of Samantha. But I found that she was not to be seen in any other portion of the BBC except once I went to the smallest room in the BBC, and there I saw none other than Samantha and her 
very close, intimate friend who was none other than the very <laughs> same person who was sitting next to me. Oh, stop. <laughs> I think that's quite I think that paints a picture. Can we talk quickly about your careers outside, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Uh, Barry, you've written for such comics as Kenny Everett. I've written to a lot of famous comedians <laughs> as well. Morecambe and Wise? Yes. Ooh. What sort of noises do we have to make? Just, can you do farmyard? <laughs> what? A day in the farmyard. <laughs> what? Oh, and over there's James Cagney. <laughs> Kenny Everett, Morecambe and Wise, Bruce yes. Forsyth, yes. Yes. Tommy Cooper, yes. Stanley Baxter, yes. Dick Emery, Yes. Dave Allen? Yes. Frankie Howard? Yes. Bob Hope? Yes. Jack Benny? Yes. Richard Pryor? Yes. Incredible. On one occasion. Charles Dickens? Charles Dickens. <laughs> you wrote for Charles Anthony Trollope, what a pain he was. <laughs> Tim, it says here you've worked on Me and My Girl with Richard O'Sullivan and has also worked alongside Roland Ratt. I have, yes. Was that a great honour? That was a great honour. And also, um, what's the name of the original page three girl? You know who I mean. Anyway, she was together, three of us together. And Graham and I wrote for Orson Welles. I read that. I deliberately left that out then. Because it's, it's not funny. It's after this, Roland Ratt. Roland Ratt. It's like Milligan, I used to write for. You see, I liked Roland Ratt. I thought it was good. You know, it was yeah. the best thing the director general did for Yes. People said, "Hook the man that brought back." Yes. Graham, a scientific question for you. So listen carefully. What happens exactly when Eric eats a banana? <laughs> um, when Eric eats a banana, he turns into Banana Man. I'm afraid. Ask Tim. Tim was involved. Yes. He's not entirely innocent. <laughs> <laughs> I was Eric, and I did eat that Banana Man, and I turned into Graham, <laughs> who was Banana Man. Which actually, I saw one now, but rather good. Still going strong, yeah. very popular. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, picture. picture round now. Picture round. Picture round. First picture for Barry. Does that evoke any memories for you? Uh, uh, yes, that was me and uh, Johnny Vegas uh, in The Weakest Link. Uh, we were the head to head finalists. Did you win? What? No, Johnny got it. Johnny got it. I was just allowed. To, by the younger ones what to stay. Weakest link. Why on earth did you go on that? Why on earth did I go on it? Yeah. I was asked to go on vanity. it. And it was charity. It was for charity. You see. No excuse. I do a lot of charity work. a lot of work for vanity. I do a lot of charity work. It's the Why dom is... dominatrix you like. Oh, yes. It, she Whitlap. does stir your... She, she does wins, stir she your wins, I flee to the country. Johnny got... Why has Johnny right. Vegas got Mr. Spock ears on? Yeah. Well, it was a comedian's edition, ah. and I'm I'm wearing a wig to make myself look older. And it was quite an afternoon, actually. <laughs> yeah, a comedian's edition. Yes, comedian's edition. Johnny Vegas. Yeah, but light and shade, and I was on as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cultivating a new act. <coughs> Graham, a probably slightly less interesting one for you. Oh. You said it. Uh, Amongst the teeth. What's going on there? That's right. Gosh, yes, that's uh, Body Matters, which uh, I used to co-present with Gillian Rice and Helen Marion Davis, and we took a trip around the human body. Well, we started there in the mouth. So, <laughs> right, ah, right. right. Fair enough. Leave the rest of it up to you. Yes, when we did the nose, we had Kenneth Williams sliding out of an enormous human nose. They wouldn't, let me, they, wouldn't let, they wouldn't let me say, here comes the bogeyman. <laughs> 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 but you're able to say that. Did the nostrils flare when you came yeah. back? Do, um, being a, a doctor, mm. do any of the other panellists come to you with their twinges? Um, no, I'm pleased to say they don't. Uh, they wouldn't trust me, for goodness sake. No. <laughs> you can't have an old friend as a doctor. Actually, no. Graham's very good at not, not actually treating us, but saying... Either go to the hospital or not. That's the that's, that's 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 yeah. Oh, he just says, yeah. don't do that to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Tim. Oh, hello. I thought I was getting out of this. Your picture. Oh, yes. What's Graham doing in it? It's pretty obscure, that. This uh, was the in-betweeners, wasn't it? 
It must have been. Yeah. So the popular song we did um, in the 70s, for each number seven in the hit parade, uh, called The Inbetweenies, and that was the cloaks over the top to the costume. It was a costume split costume that uh, one side was old folk and the other side was glitter. And uh, that, that's really what it is. I think we were probably on some very embarrassing program because when you're on Blue Peter, probably you know, quite possibly did yeah. all the pop shows. Yeah, Crackerjack. Crackerjack. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's the way we got onto the top of the pops. Yeah. We agreed to do Crackerjack. That's right. <laughs> is it conceivable that there could be more goodies? And I don't leave Barry out of this because you've popped up in a few episodes as well. Yes. Yes, I did. Bless him. Well, we're uh, personal here. Um, have a word with Jane Root, who Jane is Root. head of uh, BBC Two, and she keeps consistently saying, no, I won't have them on. So, right. Well, we'll start an email. Yeah. Well, you probably remember the goodies was 30 years old last year. And you remember oh, the celebration, yeah. was the Street yeah. parties. <laughs> and 30 years ago, we won we Silver Rose and Montreux. That's right. right. Yes, Kim yeah. Kong. And funny enough, we seem to get... Sort of passionate people now about it because I went to Australia for a, a goodies convention last year where they've gone on showing it, and all the people there were in their 20s and 30s, which of course is the audience that the BBC desperately wants to get on board. So, yeah. This is how Humph describes you. See if you agree with what he says. Prone to argue with the chairman, slightly vulnerable, perspires a lot, a favourite with the crowd, people hiss when I'm cruel to him, said Humph. Yes, I think none of it's true except the bit about perspiring a lot. I do do that, I have to say. Um, yes, no, I'll accept that. <laughs> I'll accept that. I'm very pleased with that. Move on. <laughs> Barry Humph describes you thus. The gag man. There are no embarrassing silences, thanks to you. Embarrassing noises, but not silences. <laughs> <laughs> Bottomless pit of one-liners. Able to come up uh, with gags at a second's notice. Provides the bricks and mortar... It's very nice, isn't it? And they let me appear in it sometimes as well. I, yeah. I bring my wheelbarrow in. <laughs> very good on well, that's, plumbing. That's very gracious of him, and uh, particularly about my um, uh, um, quick wits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, what would he know? Well, yeah. And Graham, you're described uh, bides his time, picks his moment, a punchline man supreme, very dry, often has the perfect punchline which helps Humph to end the round on a high note. Helps him, eh? <coughs> Very dry as opposed to the rather sweaty me, is that what he said? <laughs> Was that Humph who said that? Yes. Ah, so I helped <laughs> yeah. I detected Graham's style in that. I sort of put a stop to the fun, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you bide your time. <laughs> Humph's very modest about his own comic abilities. Uh, what do you think his particular gifts are? He's very arrogant, uh, Alf. He would be modest <laughs> with you. But, uh, he's overbearing and quite I, I, ruthless. I was a fan of his when I was a teenager. I used to go and listen to his band, which still plays yeah. magnificently. And I still get a thrill out of working with Humph. It's extraordinary after these years. And he's, he's such an incredibly nice man, isn't mm -hmm. he? Very. And very bright man. And he is modest, but um, he shouldn't be, because I think he's quite fantastic. I still think it's him. <laughs> yeah. And how much of his stuff is... Written and how much is that? Well, he, he, he is capable of writing everything, but Ian Patterson basically writes his script now, and I think Ian would say that the great thing is you're writing for a great man, and there's nothing worse for a writer than to write something that's delivered badly. Uh, Ian writes some good stuff, and Hunt makes it even better, which is the perfect for a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and Hunt does it obviously in the nature of the show it's not all scripted Humph reads his links and then we play the games and Humph's interjections are his own and uh, very often <laughs> they're showstoppers as well so he is an extremely funny man I don't think he knows how funny he is or how he is funny <laughs> uh, which is probably a good thing he just does it he's in a great tradition like Kenneth Horn was in Round the Horn sort of the urbane man in the middle with all the idiots milling about and he's never quite sure what's going on but just wants to get it over and the, the seeming innocence allows it to be absolutely <laughs> filthy, which is, Hump uh, can't have said that, can he? And of course, everything he says is do l'entendre anyway, so he hasn't said anything filthy. And he looks really genuinely surprised if the audience laughs. But he, as Graham says, he can add levels of one we recorded on Sunday with something in your handwriting so bad I have to pin it up and run past it to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't quite know what it means, but it made me laugh with <laughs> <laughs> 
The programme consultant was Ian Patterson and the producer was John Maysmith. John, how did you first uh, come to the show? In 1991 it was. In his grandmother's will, contract. <laughs> did you make any changes to the format? Uh, there was certain, I mean, you know, after every new producer has an idea, I think, of the, of the strengths and weaknesses of the show. Uh, it was not a show that I'd sort of uh, consciously listened to a great deal, so I suppose I came to it sort of quite fresh and perhaps sort of uh, relatively objectively. Um, I think there were certain rounds that I thought maybe had been a little bit past their sell-by date. Um, uh, but uh, past, well, previous producers had kept quite a good archive of past rounds, so I was able to sort of go through them initially. Um, and I also had an exercise uh, swiftly after taking over the show. I was asked by the Worldwide to, com to compile a, um, uh, an audio cassette. I thought I'd do a compilation of past programs. So I basically listened to, well, I phoned up the teams first to say, could they suggest any good rounds for the, uh, for the tape? And they said, uh, I can't remember any. They could, I couldn't remember any highlights from any of the show. So I listened to every single tape in the, in the, in the, in the, in the archive. It was about, I must be, 150 programs or something. Then Which was sorry, and then you found a highlight. And then I found a highlight. I found quite a few actually, and they're on the first. Um, they're on the first tape. Ian, what's your first memory of coming to? I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Well, in, in the non-professional sense, um, that's when I started writing. Now, in the non-professional sense, I, I came to a clue when it started, as a, you know, I used to listen to it in the senses when I was um, in the real world doing a real job, uh, and never thinking that. Uh, some 20 years later, I'm actually working with the guys and writing on the show, which is a bit of a tragic end to a young person's career, I know, but um, <laughs> it is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as John describes, uh, Bob Fraser Steele and I were writing the news quiz at the time, and um, the BBC and its wisdom sacked our, um, our producer, um, very sensibly in my opinion, um, and then noticed at the beginning of the next series they didn't have a producer, not so sensibly. They, they decided to let John have a crack at it. And he, I think the two shows were in production at the same time, or they overlapped or something, um, which meant that, that John had been writing the, the links and some very good ones too, I thought, I have to say, but that's not necessarily a producer's job, especially since it takes the bread out of the mouths of writers who have slaved years and done their apprenticeship for this, only for some amateur to make pathetic attempts at writing a few knob gags in his spare time. Okay, teams, to assist Stephen, you'll be performing these songs as duets. I think that's right. I can't read my producer's writing. It's the worst writing I've ever seen in my life. The only way to read it is pin it up on a board and run past it. It's a credit to all of you, really, that it's gotten funnier as time's gone on. How sweet of you to notice. How very, uh, you yeah, uh, perceptive of you to notice, I'd like to say. Um, I think that, yeah, the, I think the bit, well, obviously, as far as I'm concerned, is obviously the main stuff I did to write for Hump. Um, Hump wasn't, in my opinion, doing enough because, um, not because he's lazy, simply because he wasn't being given stuff to do. And I don't think anyone had ever considered that the point of having the chairman there was to um, do a sort of 10-minute stand-up act in between uh, all the rounds. But um, in that, virtually, if you gave him the Argos catalogue, he could read it and make it funny. So it's, it's not such an onerous task. But you just think, yeah, I can hear him doing this. And occasionally I write a link, and I think, well, that link's easily long enough. And I think there's another gag there. Would be nice to hear him do it. And, oh, hang on, there's a there's a topper that could go with that. Well, I'll put it in anyway. We can always cut it out. Um, but I do occasionally feel a bit sorry for the other guys, Tim and the rest of them, have to sit there while he um, grinds his way through a couple of pages of old rubbish I've been churning out the night before. The lines sometimes get pretty near the knuckle. So not with you. Uh, I'm talking about innuendo. You mean knob gags? I mean knob gags. Oh, no, we don't do There is no rudery at all. Um, the, the words on the page are completely innocent. Humph actually said the secret to his delivery is that he doesn't actually understand the joke. No, no, yeah, he's, no, I mean, he does read it as if he doesn't get the joke, but he obviously does. But he has got that fantastic knack of genuinely looking as if it's the first time 
he's, he's read it. Quite often it sounds like the first time he's read it as well, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, he really does have that ability to uh, just pick it off the page as if he were like, you know, reading a shopping list, something he might casually glance down. I don't think there's any better deliverer of a line. Uh, or a chairman of any other panel game, and uh, I seem to have worked at almost yeah. so, so is Ian. That's probably because it was Olivier. I mean, Olivier was just hopeless. He couldn't read a line to save his could he? Obviously, I'm talking about uh, <laughs> obviously the chairman of panel games, panel games, but uh, there are a few, few, you know, uh, compare radio and television panel games, there are a few people that can get sort of. Uh, you know, laughs and rounds of applause before they've even introduced the, the, the teams. Um, I don't know what the percentage of, uh, uh, say, what's sort of 50% lines and 50% delivery, but um, Ian has, because I've worked with him quite a lot in other on other ventures, both on radio and television, and it's not been completely unknown for some of the lines that Humphrey has delivered to have been used again for other performers. And I have to say that they haven't gone down nearly as well. Has anyone ever phoned up from on high and said, I can't believe Humph has just said that? Uh, I, I have sometimes get um, I, emails of, uh, of, of, of <coughs> praise from fellow producers, astonished that uh, some line could have could have been delivered. Well, I come back with um, a Samantha line. Uh, was it um, was it Italian? Some sort of Italian thing that she. No, it was nice. No, it was nice. It was nice cream thing. Yes, she'd. Um, she was going to spend the evening uh, licking the nuts, nuts off a large Neapolitan. Yes. yes, and I really don't see where the uh, where the joke is in that. I mean, yes. she was simply going out. It's an ice cream, cream isn't it? Ice cream that has with pistachio nuts, nuts on, on the top. Has yes. nuts on it. Yes. She was. She was licking yeah. it as one does. Yeah. She wasn't going to commit a sexual act yes. on, a, on an Italian. Yes. I mean, that's just ludicrous to think that. Yes. Uh, also, fat I, or otherwise. When the, the, the dog breeders didn't she go to the park with a with a with a German shepherd? Oh, no, I think it was time to let her whip it out. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah. All oh, right. So it's been 30 years. Any thoughts on uh, how it's lasted and why it's still so popular? Yeah. Um, probably. Um, idleness on the part of the schedulers and, and their inability seriously their inability to come up with anything that could be better to replace it it's a very good show with very good people on it, it's as simple as that um, and it hasn't got lazy, I mean there are plenty of rounds that used to be done which aren't done anymore there are new rounds that have come in and gone fairly quickly uh, there are some one or two rounds which we've done which only have ever appeared once and got fantastic laughs at the time and yet you know, other shows would probably do that again if not every week adding tonight uh, that's not been the case um, and it's also got in the panelists um, sadly no longer with, with Willie but um, certainly with a choice of some of the best uh, guest comedians in the country um, with those four people sat there, you have got some of the, you know, the best talent there is in, in the country, and, and the diverse talents as well. I mean, they come from various different schools, um, partly comprehensive, part public, obviously. Um, but, um, uh, and where was I? Did I tell you about going to the dentist the other week? I'm completely lost. I'm sorry. Um, but there was a fantastic <laughs> diversity. Um, which means that you, you don't have to, to do it. So if you watch uh, an awful lot of TV uh, comedy uh, panel games, um, you could swap all the people around from seat to seat and not really notice any difference. I mean, their material is much the same. Um, if you switched the set, you know, the, if you turned away from the set and just listened to it, you'd have trouble telling who was delivering which line and which joke. But there's there's not that problem with uh, with Clue because each individual does have his own style and it all adds together like some kind of bizarre oral jigsaw that uh, sort of melds together to make something a bit bigger, I think. And have I won my award for being pretentious yeah, yeah. Pratt yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's a tremendous showcase. That's why it's lasted. And it combines every form of humor. Satire, nonsense, impressions, singing. It's even got a pianist. Yeah. Uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous show. Thank you. Thank you.
Dave Graham Garden, Sandy Coxvig and Tim Brooke Taylor have been given silly things to do by Humphrey Littleton, with Colin Sell setting some of them to music. So uh, I'm here with Colin Sell, uh, famously the pianist on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Um, does it seem like 30 years and were you there from the very beginning? Um, it, 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 it sort of takes me by surprise actually that yes it's been going 30 years. I joined it I think 28 years ago. I didn't do the pilot and I didn't do the first series um, and then I joined it and the reason I joined it was because the the very young producer, um, the very good producer who'd been asked to take it over was a chap called Simon Brett, who of course has gone on to do lots of other things, writing books and plays and heaven knows what else. Um, but he'd seen me do stuff um, up at the Edinburgh Fringe and he just took a complete chance on me and said, I'm given this new programme to do and uh, I've, you know, I've heard you play and I've heard you write, you, know, you write music and you improvise and you can kind of cope with those things that people sort of throw at you musically. Uh, would you like to do it? Um, so that was back in 1974. I was in short trousers, of course, then. You know, I was a child prodigy, really. Um, and it was, uh, yes, it, it, it took me a long time to get used to it because I was working, and I still am working, with people who were sort of my icons, really. You know, when I was a teenager. I was watching The Goodies yeah. and with Barry Cryer and Humphrey Littleton playing jazz and all that, you know. And uh, Willie Russian, of course, was an enormous name in the, in, particularly uh, when he, in the 60s. He, he made his name, really, doing the, the, That Was the Week That Was and so on. Um, so suddenly I was working with these people and so for about 10 years I kept thinking they're never going to ask back they never asked me back you know I'm, I'm sure they weren't and gradually over a period of time I've become which is very nice for me I've become part of the, the setup. you know Yeah. You I don't are. do much in the programme it has to be said if you actually analyse it I don't do a great deal but I get a kind of reflected glory from it which is nice yes, yeah and there's a certain relationship on stage at least between you and Humph yes yes which uh, people enjoy they do and we actually because we get on very well but but it's, it's good fun to play that sort of he's antagonistic towards me I just sit and smile blithely at him it was back in 1972 that Colin first started to learn the piano within <laughs> within two or three weeks he could manage to tap out a few basic tunes with one finger Obviously, his later career never fulfilled that early promise. <laughs> and I, I'm, I don't have a microphone in front of me, so if I want to make any comments, I'll have to really shout. So yeah. you get this sort of disembodied voice in the background, yeah. um, which uh, Humph always likes to play off and make rude remarks about me and so on. So, um, have you ever got together with Humph as pianist and trumpeter? Only a couple of occasions when we've done Christmas shows, he's had his, his trumpet there and we've done the Christmas specials and he's played Rudolph Red Nose Reindeer and we've worked then with, uh, with his bass player and drummer as well. Um, and there was a book launch we did some time ago, uh, two or three years back at uh, Pizza Express, and uh, we had um, uh, sort of a, sort of, we had a quartet then, there was Humph and me and again his bass player and drummer and we did quite a lot of jazz playing, which is very jolly. Um, um, but no, we, we don't. Apart from apart from these other occasions, we we, you know, yeah. we don't work together musically. You know, we very jolly we did. The only thing is that many years ago, I was asked to do the music for um, a radio version of um, Look Back in Anger, and um, Jimmy Porter, Look in Anger, plays the trumpet. And so somebody said to me, "Well, why don't you get Humphrey Littleton to come and play it?" It was a very good idea. So it was kind of sort of revenge, really, for all the times that Humphrey Littleton had been rude to me in the program. It was quite <laughs> we had a good laugh about it because I, yeah. I I was actually getting him to come. The studio and play my music and do sort of what I told him, and because it was smashing, we had a wonderful time. It was great. Yeah. He, he, did a, he did a very good version of what the sort of sort of trumpet playing that Jimmy Porter would have done. Piano accompaniment will be provided by Colin Sell, who, as far as we can make out, has never had to go through any kind of checks. <laughs> Actually, we were interested to hear that Colin was responsible for bringing the Beatles to Abbey Road. Camden Council have just sent in the pest controller's bill for. <laughs> Fumigating the entire block. There's a huge love for the show across the country, and Humph recently played trumpet on a on a Radiohead. He did. Yes. Are you ever, uh, as a, as an icon of this show, 
asked to uh, make guest appearances and stuff I, like that. I, I have occasionally, was... yes. I mean, I, I, I've been involved with it, with, with the odd um, the odd band. I've been asked to do um, perhaps the odd bit of sort of um, cabaret playing or, or, or cocktail playing, something like that, because people, you know, regardless of whatever talent I may have, people associate me with, associate me with the show, which is nice. So, yes, a little spin-off like that occasionally, yes. But what's interesting is that nobody knows what it looked like because the, 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 there's only ever been one photograph of me published by the Radio Times. Um, and so nobody knows what I look like. So I, I don't get people stopping me in the street and saying, oh, you're Colin Zell, you know, um, which is a bit of a relief in a way, really, because I think um, sometimes people, you know, sort of suffer for their <laughs> being in the public eye, you know. Okay. Well, we'll put you on the website. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a little terrified. <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that maybe no one will see it there either. <laughs> you shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, any favourite memories of the last... Oh gosh! Years. Um, I do. I mean, I always enjoy doing the program. I mean, I, obviously, we, we all you know, we all miss Willie. I think there's two things really. One is a specific moment actually when I was accompanying Willie Rushton, and he was just doing what he always did was like he did his own thing, you know. And he just called out to me halfway through singing. He said, "Keep up, piano." He said, um, which the audience found very funny, and I did as well because he was he was just making it a little difficult for me to follow. But I think the other thing it isn't so much a memory; it, it's just a feeling about the, the program. Is that what is very rewarding is that so many younger people come into it and perform in it and love doing it and they fit in perfectly well it's not as if it's just older comedians and yeah. somehow shutting yeah. out the young ones um, I mean you know it's great to have you know the sort of we've had you know, Tony Hawks and Jeremy Hardy and, uh, and Sandy Toxvig and so on and so forth um, and I dare say we could have even younger people if we wanted we could probably you know I don't know we, yeah. people of the sort of the Mark yeah. Thomas generation um, and the reason I say that is because uh, apart from doing bits of music and so on and so forth, I also run the music at East 15 Acting School. Um, and I found over, over recent years that there are more and more young people now who listen to Radio 4. Yeah. And therefore, I have a yeah. lot of students who actually know the programme. Whereas once upon a time, when I was teaching back, say, you know, back in, uh, until about the middle of the 90s, really, um, young people weren't regular Radio 4 listeners, and therefore they didn't associate my name with any sort of silly radio programmes. Mm. And therefore, this, this was a whole completely different different story, you know. Um, so it's, it's nice. We're obviously on reaching out. And if you look at the audience, the audience we had tonight at the um, you know, the, the 30th anniversary um, show, uh, the Players Theatre, it's a pretty mixed audience of, in ages, yeah. Yeah. which is very nice. It yeah. isn't just the sort of I people of our age. Yeah, families, uh, yes. as well as a lot of, uh, oh, yes. a couple of uh, famous faces here, oh, yeah. Judy Dench. Indeed, yes. Who's yes. uh, been on the programme, but she's actually been yeah. in it. Um, but I've been, I've, you know, I've got some friends in tonight who, uh, you know, students and so on, and uh, and they just just were sort of begging for tickets, you know. Yeah. So that's that's nice. That's nice. That it's it's nice. spreading, you know. And so, ladies and gentlemen, as the plastic cup of time fails to emerge from the vending machine of destiny. <laughs> And the scalding coffee substitute of fate splashes onto the unsuspecting crotch of eternity. <laughs> I notice it's the end of the show, and indeed the series. Aww. But our regular teams will be back again in the spring. And what would the show be? What would the show be like without four top-class comedians? <laughs> Tune in next year to find out. <laughs> so, from Samantha. The the teams, myself and the fine folk of High Wycombe, it's goodbye. Barry Cryer, Graham Garden, Jeremy Hardy and Tim Brooke Taylor were being given silly things to do by Humphrey Littleton, with Colin Sell setting some of them to music. The programme consultant was Ian Pattinson and the producer was John Naismith. <laughs>